Last week, we learned about the humble origin story of a trio of sisters whose apparent ability to communicate with the dead helped to usher in a new era of belief and, in fact, a whole new religion in the United States called spiritualism, specifically the American kind. Now, these days, when someone says they're spiritual, we assume they mean they probably wear a red Kabbalah string on their wrist, go to yoga several times a week, and are vegan. But during the second half of the 19th century, in English-speaking countries in North America and Europe, and also Latin American and Caribbean nations in the form of Espiritismo, the religion of spiritualism was all about communing with ghosts in a variety of ways. The basis of this religious movement was that spirits were around us always, and communicating with them was just a matter of finding a medium with open channels directly to them. In his book, The Divine Principles of Nature, by self-proclaimed seer and clairvoyant Andrew Jackson Davis, Davis had claimed to foresee that someone would soon break the barrier between the human and spirit world and usher in an era of communication with people from the great beyond. Enter Maggie and Kate Fox. In the spring of 1848, when they were mere teenagers, after moving into a cottage in upstate New York near Rochester with their mother and father, the Fox family began hearing strange knocks in the house. Mrs. Fox, whose nerves were probably already frayed from having had 800 children, well, actually just seven children, but honestly, what's the difference? And who had already reunited with her alcoholic husband, was convinced when her two young daughters told her the knocking and rapping sounds were coming from a spirit and that they could translate what it was telling them. Apparently, on March 31st, young Kate suggested that perhaps someone was just playing an April Fool's Day prank on them. But instead of agreeing that that was probably the most logical explanation, Mrs. Fox decided to have a real heart-to-heart with the knocker and get to the bottom of this whole thing. That spirit, in conversation with Maggie and Kate, caught the audience of the surrounding community, and the two girls quickly became local legends, with neighbors asking them to communicate with their dead loved ones. The girls gained so much notoriety, in fact, that a local journalist published a pamphlet about their astounding abilities. And when that pamphlet landed in the hands of their older sister, Leah, everyone's fate changed. Leah was 15 years older than Maggie and lived in Rochester, where she supported herself and her only daughter by teaching music. Leah had read The Divine Principles of Nature and thought that her sisters were the prophecy Davis had written of. So she paid a visit to her parents' home to see her sisters in action, at which point Leah was like, we're taking this act on the road. She moved her sisters and her mother the 40 minutes from Hydesville to Rochester, where they would have the opportunity to show their talents to a wider, more cosmopolitan clientele. She didn't bring her dad for some reason? I don't know. She was like, no boys allowed, or whatever. They started charging money, did a few nights at a huge auditorium during which angry crowds demanded they literally be strip-searched to figure out what the con was because obviously there was a con. But the people who examined the girls couldn't come up with any specific explanation for any of it. They were like, uh, listen, bro, I don't know what to tell you, but these bitches seem to be on the up and up. Shrug. And Leah was like, take that. And that, stranger, is where we left off last week. By the summer of 1850, Leah decided her sisters were ready for the big time and packed up their things and hightailed it down to New York City to hobnob with even fancier and wealthier suckers. Er, I mean, people. 
The trio quickly set up shop at Barnum's Hotel in downtown Manhattan. And if that name sounds familiar, you're right, sort of. The hotel was owned by the cousin of the famous circus man, P.T. Barnum. Now, as was the case elsewhere, not everyone was ready to hail the arrival of the Fox sisters. An editorial in the Scientific American ran a heavily side-eyed piece about spiritualism in general with the title, Spiritual Knockers from Rochester. What knockers? Oh, thank you, doctor. Despite the haters, the Fox sisters, with Leah as their self-appointed translator, saw upwards of 100 people a day charging a dollar, about $35 in today money, for group seances. I don't know how much they charged for one-on-one sessions, but according to the Smithsonian Magazine, they met with, quote, preeminent members of New York society, end quote, including Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, and abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who received this message from whatever spirit was communicating with them. Spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of reform. Look, not for nothing, and what do I know, but something tells me that if Henry Ford had gone to see the Fox sisters, he would have gotten a message like, Spiritualism will work miracles in the cause of white supremacy. According to HistoryNet.com, James Fenimore Cooper, author of The Last of the Mohicans, went to see the Fox sisters in the summer of 1850. And the spirit that communicated with him through Raps and Knox remarkably recounted in detail the death of his sister in a horseback riding accident 50 years before. HistoryNet.com says Cooper, quote, instantly became a believer, end quote. But other sources, including Cooper's Wikipedia page, say he was a pretty staunch and devout Episcopalian. More interesting, though, is that Cooper died a little over a year later at just 61. You'd think the spirit might have warned him about that instead of recounting something that had happened a century before. Anyway, the New York Tribune, whose editor you'll remember was a customer of the Fox sisters, ran a piece praising the women that read... We are in the dark, as any of our readers. The manner and bearing of the ladies are such as to create a prepossession in their favor. They have no theories to offer an explanation of the acts, and apparently have no control of their incomings and outgoings. Apparently, a reporter with the New York Herald, which hadn't been kind to the women upon their arrival to New York City, said he believed the Fox women, quote, were in every sense incapable of any intentional deception, end quote. To which I say, how do you know that, sir? Clearly, some Big Apple media was beginning to drink their Foxy Kool-Aid. The Fox sisters became celebrities in New York City. Actress Mary Taylor sang a song about them on Broadway called Rochester Rappers at Barnum's Hotel, which is a pretty uninspired title. And apparently they had merch. If you were lucky enough to be around New York City in the summer of 1850, you too could walk around with your very own folding fan with the words Rochester Rappers emblazoned on it. Eat your heart out, Wu-Tang Clan. 
According to the Paris Review, by October of that year, the Fox sisters had become such a huge sensation that a bunch of New Age-type periodicals popped up all about spiritualism and mediumship. Suddenly, there were hundreds of families from upstate New York to Virginia to Ohio who could communicate with the dead. By 1851, the periodical Spiritual World counted more than 100 mediums in New York City alone. Andrew Jackson Davis, who'd written The Divine Principles of Nature, in which he predicted this whole thing, ran around doing a bit of an I told you so, claiming to have written in his diary on the very day the Fox sisters first began hearing the knocking. A warm breathing passed over my face, and I heard a voice, tender and strong, saying, Brother, the good work has begun. Behold, a living demonstration is born. Recognizing an opportunity, Davis grabbed onto the Fox sisters' petticoats and hitched a ride to become the recognized leader of the spiritualist movement. Of course, religious movements don't happen in a vacuum. Much like the conditions in which life emerged from the primordial ooze millions of years ago, social conditions have to be just so in order to foster a movement. According to a piece on HistoryNet.com, quote, By the 1840s, American preoccupation with death was widespread. The nation's new cities were expanding, its immigration was at an all-time high, and its factories and ports booming, all of which contribute to urban overcrowding and poor sanitation, which spawned epidemics of cholera, whooping cough, influenza, and diphtheria. The mortality rate was on the rise. Nearly one-third of all city-born infants died before reaching their first birthday, and young mothers bearing an average of five children each were often fatally struck with puerperal fever. Death thus touched all families, leaving behind millions of relatives with memories of those who had passed to the other side, end quote. That's a lot of death. And then there was the Civil War, which saw more than 600,000 Americans die. It's no wonder people took to a religion that claimed to have open channels of communication with the dead. Mary Todd Lincoln held seances in the White House to try to communicate with her dead children. Even though religion and science generally mix about as well as your racist in-laws and Gen Z cousins do at your family gatherings, it may actually have been advances in science that helped fan the flames of this growing religion. According to Barbara M. Weisberg at AmericanHeritage.com, quote, The recently invented telegraph became the movement's central metaphor. If earthly messages could be instantaneously conveyed by electricity, why couldn't spirit messages be delivered via a spiritual telegraph? End quote. I mean, I have a few answers as to why not, but I'll get to that. Journalist Edward White of the Paris Review put it this way, quote, The very sound of rapping echoed the sound of the new telegraph machines that seemingly by magic allowed people in New York to instantaneously communicate with people in Boston, Los Angeles, or even on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, end quote. Also, spiritualists wisely took advantage of the growing entertainment industries and performed demonstrations complete with music, splashy lighting, and effects such as tables tipping during seances. For a population so addled by death and disease and used to religious services being about as entertaining as watching beige paint dry, the spectacle of it all must have been a huge draw. 
Added to all that was a growing sense of dis-ease that other advances in science, such as the discovery of fossils, meant that the Earth was way older than the Bible said it was, were starting to make believers in God a little itchy. For them, spiritualism provided proof that a spiritual world existed, which I guess by association meant God existed, when science seemed to be telling them what they believed all these years was a lot of hooey. Of course, the proof was something many could easily dismiss as parlor tricks, phantom knocking and tables seeming to tip over on their own. But people, it seems, are willing to go through a lot of mental gymnastics to affirm their beliefs. Despite the eagerness of some to believe in what the Fox sisters were peddling, though, there was a growing tide of skeptics whose doubt might have helped bring about a slow and devastating downfall for Maggie and Kate Fox. While the summer of 1850 brought the Fox sisters cheering crowds and cool merch, just one year later, a tide of skepticism prompted the women to submit to yet another examination to see what kind of tricks they were up to. In 1851, a group of doctors from Buffalo observed the sisters again. Previously, defectors from all around largely believed the girls were performing some sort of ventriloquism with their toes. But in this new examination, the investigators shifted their curiosity to their knees. Turns out, no knocks happened when the women's knees were held. Leah replied to this simply by saying, Yeah, dudes, you suck. The spirits don't even want to be around you. That's why they didn't say anything. And whether their followers didn't believe the doctors in the first place or bought Leah's explanation, the Fox sisters' influence only grew. By 1852, the spirits were super chatty. According to American Heritage, mediums were holding spirit circles in, quote, Boston, New York, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Cleveland, Chicago, Cincinnati, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., and even across the Atlantic in England and Europe, end quote. And the spirits were finding new and innovative and, coincidentally, <laughs> way more entertaining ways of getting their messages across. Now, in addition to knocking, audiences were dazzled as, quote, phosphorescent clouds glimmered, mahogany tables tilted and levitated, invisibles played heavenly music on bells or guitars, raps beat out the rhythms of popular tunes, Hail Columbia was a favorite, end quote. Hail Columbia, BTW, was apparently our first national anthem, and after listening to it on YouTube, I'll just say that sporting events would be a whole different thing if people had to sit through that nightmare before each game. Yikes. Anyway. Another popular form of communication, apparently, was mirror writing, which I'm sure you're all familiar with from Harry Potter and automatic writing that a medium would do while in a trance, receiving the message from the spirit and writing it down. Apparently, preeminent ghosts such as Benjamin Franklin and Tom Paine employed this method of communication through the Foxes on several occasions. In 1854, possibly with the encouragement of a dead Benjamin Franklin, Congress even got involved. Senators from Illinois and Massachusetts presented a petition signed by 15,000 Americans requesting the appointment of a scientific commission to study spiritualism. 
Of course, senators are required to present petitions when a certain threshold of signatures has been reached, so whether or not these dudes were on board with the whole thing or completely embarrassed to have to take up everyone's time, I don't know. And the point is thankfully moot, as Congress was like, that's gonna be a no from me, dog. 15,000 signatures is really not a lot of signatures, especially considering that spiritualism had between 1 and 2 million followers, by their own estimate, according to HistoryNet.com, I should add. One wonders why the other nearly 1 million to 1.9 million followers didn't sign the petition. But, as any TikTok influencer will tell you, the faster your star rises, the quicker it can burn out. By 1855, a number of prominent American scientists, writers, and thinkers, New Year's resolution, figure out how to get paid to just think, were warning against the rapid rise of this spiritual movement. Prominent transcendentalist writer Ralph Waldo Emerson of Where's Waldo fame, that's a joke, called it a rat revolution. And while I have no idea what that means, I think it's safe to say it's not very positive. People in general don't want to be associated with rodents, which is why I will never understand the popularity of the Disney film Ratatouille. Here come the angry DMs. The founding editor of a little paper called The New York Times, Henry Raymond, said spiritualism had an appeal that is wider, stronger, and deeper than any philosophical or socialistic theory, since it appeals to the marvelous in man. In five years, it has spread like wildfire over this continent, so that there is scarcely a village without its mediums and its miracles. If it be a delusion, it has misled very many of the intelligent as well as the ignorant. But journalist Edward White of the Paris Review thinks these mustachioed, cravatted men may have been less concerned with the message of spiritualism than they were with the messengers of spiritualism. Never before had a Western religion been spearheaded by women. That fact alone probably gave them the willies, but add to that that some of these women were actually making a good living peddling these performances and seances, and they didn't need a man to help them with it. Gasp! This was in the Victorian era, remember, when the general mood was that a woman's role is in the home, creating a godly space to which her naturally barbaric husband, who necessarily had to go out and be ungodly in the name of capitalism, could find shelter and solace and be swaddled in the tenants of the church via his wife's housekeeping, cooking, and sexual compliance. We couldn't have women running around and doing things like being self-reliant. What would be next? Demanding a living wage? Only having sex when they wanted to? Having sex with someone other than men? Yes, the answer to all those questions is yes. Gender roles were a super big deal at this time, and spiritualism was threatening the natural order. In his piece in the Paris Review, White wrote... Quote, before the Hydesville wrapping, Leah had been a single mother, hampered by the ubiquitous social restrictions that came with being born female. In the field of spirit mediumship, a branch of the entertainment industry that she, more than anyone else, had helped to invent, women dominated. She acquired wealth, social clout, and opportunities that would never usually have been afforded to someone of her background. 
Over the next decade, she became a venerable society lady and the wife of a Wall Street banker, end quote. I mean, at least she didn't go around kissing girls and wearing pants. Anyway, all this pushback the sisters battled would come to a head not only due to the culture war on spiritualism, but the chaos of their personal life, too. It's life that would eventually kill their spirit for good. In the fall of 1852, a renowned Arctic explorer named Dr. Alicia Kane strolled through the lobby of the Philadelphia Hotel where Maggie Fox was performing a seance, and he announced himself instantly smitten with her. Never mind that Maggie was a child of 17 years old and Kane was a whole-ass grown man of 32. And never mind that being instantly smitten with someone actually just means you want to bone them. Kane brought Maggie home to his parents and said, Hark, here is the child, er, I mean the woman I am going to wed. To which his family was like, not today, Bob. They weren't worried about her age, though. No, it was that the Canes were a respectable family that practiced whatever Anglo-Saxon religion they thought was the one God liked best, and they weren't going to let their grown-ass adult son make his own decisions about his own future. So, Dr. Kane decided to my fair lady the situation and teach Maggie how to sing The Rain in Spain Falls Mainly on the Plain like a proper young lady so that she could be seen in public without embarrassing him and so that he could bone her with the blessing of his parents. But then, and this shit is really fucked up, he left for a two-year voyage to the Arctic, leaving Maggie with his family. According to American Heritage, Maggie promised to give up spiritualism and let Kane's family give her a proper education while he was away. So, Maggie was left stranded in the Pennsylvania countryside by a bunch of uppity strangers who openly didn't like the cut of her jib. And then, after two years, Kane came back and made her sign a fucking declaration disclaiming their relationship. Of all the tomfuckery in this great big world, Maggie, heartbroken, signed the document. And then Kane was like, actually, you know what? I'm just playing. We can stay together. This fucking guy. By 1856, Dr. Kane still hadn't made good on his promise to marry Maggie, and before leaving on yet another excursion, he agreed to have a ring-exchanging ceremony with her in place of a proper wedding, which he promised her he would do when he got back. He's like the Nathan Detroit of the 19th century. And then, wouldn't you know, Dr. Kane died in Havana before ever getting back to make good on his promise to Maggie. After spending five years sharing a home with people who hated her, chasing the empty promise of this jabroni, according to the Paris Review, quote, Maggie's despair was compounded by the insult when Alicia's parents forbade her from attending the funeral and refused to acknowledge her as their son's betrothed and common-law wife, thereby rejecting her claim to a share of his estate. She retaliated by publishing The Love Life of Dr. Kane, a book of his letters to her, end quote. Go get him, tiger. She also, somewhat confusingly, converted to Catholicism to honor Kane's memory and apparently his wishes, as he had always urged her to convert. But Kane himself was a Presbyterian, so shrug? 
And according to the Paris Review, quote, her savior and soulmate ripped away, Maggie's life veered onto the wrong side of the road. She turned to drink to dampen the pain of her loss and to submerge the shame and self-loathing that spiritualism caused her. Yet the more she drank, the more unfit she became for dealing with life and the farther she drifted from sense of purpose, end quote. Imagine that, alcoholism ruining someone's life? I saw a great tweet recently that was like, how about a drink that makes you feel terrific in the moment and then completely fucks up your life over time? By 1858, 10 years after Leah saw a business opportunity in her two sisters' apparent gift in their humble cabin in Hydesville, New York, Leah stopped holding seances for pay. It helped that she had married a really wealthy man. Kate, on the other hand, was left to carry the Fox sisters' torch, finding new ways to communicate the messages she received from the spirit world. According to American Heritage, Kate was now, quote, communicating two messages simultaneously, writing one while speaking the other, transcribing messages in reverse script, utilizing blank cards upon which words seemed to spontaneously appear, end quote. After the Civil War, spiritualism saw a huge surge in membership. By the 1880s, some estimates put the number of believers around 8 million in the States and Europe. But apparently, a lot of these new practitioners expected flashier demonstrations. It's like the Avengers movies. You can't just show the same old special effects year after year. Hell, you can't even show the same Spider-Man year after year. Audiences get savvy real quick. But Kate was becoming worn out and disillusioned with the demands. And then, when the Fox sisters' parents, Margaret and John, both died in 1865, it all became too much for Kate, and she, too, began drinking. Maggie, who'd sworn off spiritualism, found herself so desperate for money that she returned to communing with the dead for cash. I don't know what Leah was doing during all of this, other than being the wife of a wealthy guy. It doesn't sound like she offered her sisters any help, which is especially shady since she's the one who dragged them into this whole mess in the first place. But for all I know, when asked about Maggie or Kate, Leah pulled a Mariah Carey and said, I don't know her. Kate tried to break her addiction by moving to Europe, which anyone in a 12-step program will tell you is called pulling a geographic. In other words, hoping a new place will magically erase your problems. She married and had two children, but when her husband died about 10 years into their marriage, she returned to the States with her kids and her alcoholism got worse. It's a progressive disease, you know. In 1888, spiritualists across the U.S. celebrated the religion's 40th birthday to much fanfare, but the leading periodical of the movement, called the Banner of Light, neglected to credit Maggie or Kate for their role in the matter. Which would be like Christians throwing a celebration for Christianity and not mentioning, you know, Christ. And so, in October of that year, having been cast aside and forgotten by the followers of the religion they themselves had started, a solemn and terrified Maggie and Kate Fox took to the stage at New York's Academy of Music, and Maggie announced, I am here tonight as one of the founders of spiritualism, to denounce it as an absolute falsehood from beginning to end, as the flimsiest of superstitions, the most wicked blasphemy known to the world. My sister Katie and myself were very young children when this horrible depiction began. 
At night, when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them. It is a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived in 42nd Street and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. Maggie then removed her shoes and demonstrated her ability on a stool on the stage. Remember way back in episode one when little Katie said to her mother, oh, hey, tomorrow's April Fool's Day. Maybe someone's punking us? She was trying to confess, if only her mother had heard her. Before leaving the stage that day, Maggie added something like, oh yeah, and Leah, that bitch knew about this shit the whole time. She exploited us. She then thanked God that she was able to expose the lie behind the spiritualism movement, and then she said, I'm out, dropped the mic, and hobbled off the stage in one shoe. Later that same month, the Herald ran an interview with Maggie in which she said, When spiritualism first began, Kate and I were little children, and this old woman, my other sister, made us her tools. What did we know? Oh, we grew to know too much. Our sister used us in her exhibitions, and we made money for her. Now she turns upon us because she's the wife of a rich man and opposes us both whenever she can. Oh, I am after her. You can kill sometimes without using weapons, you know. Leah, it seems, had tried to have Kate's children taken from her on the grounds of being unfit due to alcoholism. So this public exposure of what Maggie called the exploitation of her and her younger sister was likely payback. One would think that the founder of a religious movement coming forward and being like, JK, joke's on you, here's the trick, would put a real damper on the whole thing. But spiritualists, both alive and dead, apparently went on some kind of press tour with their talking points to do damage control. The spirit of the former publisher of the Spiritual Telegraph came to a medium in a seance and basically said Maggie had been abandoned by good spirits and was now only able to communicate with naughty ones who had bad intentions. I mean, okay. Others were less kind and accused Maggie of just trying to find another way to profit since she'd failed at spiritualism. Because we all know how financially successful a woman who confesses to lying can be. What a smart business strategy. Leah, meanwhile, was like, What do you think about people still referencing I don't know her all these years later? I still don't know her. And accused her sisters of being greedy attention seekers. I mean, those who live in glass houses, am I right? And then, less than a year after exposing the lie of spiritualism, Maggie was like, hey, um, so you remember that time I was like, spiritualism is a lie? So actually, that was a lie. I was kidding? She said she'd been pressured into making the confession by unnamed powerful people and her own desperation for money. But now, she assured everyone she was back on track and her spirit guides had set her right. Unfortunately, the spiritualist faithfuls had had it with her and weren't interested in welcoming her back into the fold. Kate, who'd sat on the stage with Maggie while Maggie had made her confession, continued to hold occasional seances, but somehow also continued to denounce spiritualism? 
I don't know. A quote from American Heritage literally says, quote, Kate continued to navigate an unsteady course, occasionally holding seances, more often appearing on stage to denounce spiritualism, earning a living however she could, end quote. Leah died in 1890 and was apparently celebrated by spiritualists as a kind of founding queen mother. Kate died two years later of alcoholism, followed a year later by her older sister Maggie, who apparently died penniless and alone. And then, in 1904, some schoolchildren were playing in the, I assume abandoned, old cottage that the Fox family had been renting when the girls first claimed to be able to commune with the spirits, which was now called the Spook House, where they found human bones under the foundation. A doctor examined the skeleton and placed its death at roughly 50 years earlier, which would have put the death right around the time the Fox family had been hearing the mysterious knocking and rapping sounds. For all that has been thrown into question about the Fox sisters' story, at least the body of that fated first spirit had been found. The New York Times, whose editor had warned of the insidious spread of spiritualism back in the 1860s, was quick to point out that the girls had likely just capitalized on a local story about a murdered peddler, and the whole thing was a terrific coincidence. After all, the Times piece concluded, quote, There will still remain that dreadful confession about the clicking joints which reduces the whole case to a farce, end quote. And that was largely where the reputation of the Fox sisters remained, until around 1998, when their names were hailed again as the founders of the movement that was now celebrating its 150th anniversary. Like many a wronged woman of history, the Fox sisters posthumously received the credit they were due. Edward White of the Paris Review wrote that the girls had been accidental pioneers and, quote, had trod out a path along which dozens of other female spiritualists followed, many gaining financial independence, social standing, and an outlet for their talents, personalities, and ambitions, end quote. In the end, the story of the founding of spiritualism is not that different from the story of the founding of Christianity. Though Jesus' rebellion wasn't a parlor trick and was certainly more serious and purposeful than a couple of little girls playing an April Fool's prank on their gullible mother, the result was that he was shunned and hated and, like the Fox sisters, paid the ultimate price for his work. He by crucifixion, the sisters by social rejection and alcoholism. And it wasn't until long after his death that revisionist history hailed him as the leader of a religion. The Fox sisters opened the door for women to find a way to become financially independent. Jesus, too, sought to level the financial playing field between the clergy and the peasants. In fact, all religions are founded in much the same way. An unexpected person or people do something unexpected, causing a shift in thinking. And long after they're dead, except in the case of a handful of cults, some faithful few find a way to highlight their story and make them posthumous heroes. Whether or not there is a spirit world that we can communicate with is almost beside the point. The real impact the Fox sisters made, albeit unknowingly, was to help usher in a really important era in Western religion, one in which people weren't beholden to the rules of an earlier time and instead could reach into the past themselves to connect with a wisdom beyond their own capabilities. 
The dead have much to say about us wayward wanderers on this earthly plane. And if it wasn't for the Fox sisters cueing us to listen, who knows where we'd be? Next time on Strange and Unexplained, when the United States lost a president, it gained a ghost story that still chugs on today, the Lincoln Ghost Train. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek and Jordan Kai Burnett. We're going on tour. To check out tour dates and get your tickets, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. <laughs>